Hi everybody, you are listening to the Rogue Podcast with Fox and Maya. Thanks for supporting the show. This is a show with adult content, so if you're not of legal age where you live, then turn off now. This podcast is about rope bondage. Rope bondage is edge play with inherent risk. And we strongly recommend you get proper training and listen to episode zero before attempting it. Find it at the top of our FetLife page, Rope Podcast. Fox is a rigger and Maya is a bottom, and we're rope partners and been practicing together for a couple of years. And we're excited to share our passion for rope with you. And we live in Thailand. Yes, and we do. today we have someone who's not from Thailand, um, who is from Australia. And we are pleased to have an interview with Kinky Engineer. So he's been practicing elements of BDSM and kinky play his adult life, and he shares his skills in workshops, presentations, and so on. His personal playstyle draws on a martial arts background and has a strong focus on safety, risk-aware, consensual kink, and a joy of playing near the edges. And we are especially interested in his experience designing and creating kink gear and equipment, um, given he runs a business on Etsy doing just that. So essentially, what is useful for doing rope bondage that isn't rope? Welcome and thanks for joining us, Kinky Engineer. It's quite nice to have you with us today. Hello, hello. Thanks Hi. for having me. So we're going to start the same way we start every time, pretty much. Can you tell us a bit how you got started with rope? With rope? So I've been thinking about this for the lead up to it. And like most answers, it comes back to I've always been inherently kinky, but I had the advantage with rope in that I was, uh, I grew up on a farm, mm. so rope was just always around. It was just from as soon as I could walk pretty much and do things, that rope or twine or something was always involved. So that gave me a real head start into realizing the utility of it and the different aspects of it. And uh, I remember when, because uh, I grew up in the country, it was looking for more, a bit more socialization. So I went to a local town and joined the scout group. Mm. And I thought, this would be great when I was 11. And, you know, and a bunch of the guys there had been doing it since they were seven. And they knew <laughs> all the things. And I was like, great. And so the first class was like, right, we're going to do the scout knots, you know, the, the, the bowline, the reef knot, the clove hitch. And um, one of the guys who'd been doing it for a couple of years like, all right, here's how you do. And he started to get confused. And I was like, Ah, can I show you how to do that? Because <laughs> I had the advantage that my dad had taught me all these things um, for practical use. And then that just sort of stuck with me. And then, you know, as I hit 17, 18 and um, started to explore sexuality with my girlfriend, um, I was like, huh, so this, um, the bathrobe, the belt of the bathrobe, that just sort of goes really nicely around her wrists. Mm. And it sort of all went from there. That's very nice. So where, where did you get your education into more uh, formal bondage, I would say, starting from there? So it was really progressive. So you know, I was 17 in the late 80s, the early 90s. So um, the internet literally didn't exist yet. Mm. And um, so it was very hard to come across any information. And you know, BDSM was very looked down upon, so any sort of inkling of that was uh, not, not something that you'd be willing to come out and ask about at a local library in particular. Mm. So um, explored little bits and pieces and then eventually started to find um, in the big cities some of the alternative 
sexuality shops and they had um, a few books starting to come out of America um, around bondage in particular, which was of interest to me. And um, so I just voraciously read everything I could get hold of. Then the internet started and, um, you know, besides spending all the time waiting for the modem, that sound of the modem to log on. Mm-hmm, and take, I know that sound. Yeah, and waiting for the photo to download, <laughs> all of those good times. Um, but just starting to read through different articles and things and p- pick up whatever information I could. And I guess my knowledge increased in at pace with the with the internet. And um, so, but it was very um, Western bondage, um, very Western bondage focused. Um, and then I moved to Melbourne. So I'm in Melbourne, Australia, and I moved to Melbourne in about 2010. And I thought, it's like, right, if there's anywhere that's going to be a, a class on rope bondage, it's going to be around here. And I looked around and I found one. Ironically, the class was um, about. Uh, the guy who was teaching it was uh, using uh, climbing rope and mm. um, western and or and sailing rope and it was a very western rope bondage style thing. But you know it was a great entry, and um, then that got me onto discovering fet life and sort of all of the things that expanded from there. Mm. But talking to people at events, um, it's like yeah, there's sort of a, a lot of interest in rope and it's like it really feels like there's time. This is the time to maybe do something more about that. And that's about the time that um, someone started up a, a shibari-focused dojo here. And I was in the first group of the first class of that and um, studied with them for the, a couple of years. And so that's where it sort of really let, um, gave me a big boost into shibari-style um, bondage. And so from there, I, I um, you know, when I'm tying, I pretty much just make it up as I go because I've got the the background and the skill and the technical aspect of it to be able to look at a thing and decide whether it's right or wrong. And then I'll just use all of the tools from all of the different things that I've learned over the years. So I don't stay pure to anyone's style. So for those people who don't know, what, what is a Shibari dojo? Um, so the dojo is the very much the martial arts aspects. Um, it's a following in that of a school and following the traditions of martial arts schools where there is someone who is um, sort of seen as the head of the school and then they recognise the learning of people down through um, the training ranks. And so it gives, a, a, in some regards, a narrow focus of a style, depending on the person who's running it, of course, um, and how those things evolve over the years. And so it's a place where this one was running once a week and... Um, my, me and my bunny, various bunnies that I had over the years, would, would um, go along to the class once a week and spend an hour or two hours uh, going through uh, very direct lessons that um, wasn't play. Actually, that was a big thing that was a, um, a learning, I think, for all of us as the class developed. That a lot of bunnies um, volunteered to come along and be tied up because they loved being tied up. But they didn't realize and none of us really knew to talk about the fact that it was actually quite boring for the bunnies. Mm-hmm. So, so the, particularly the bratty bunnies would start to wander off and talk to each other while they're still getting tied up um, or various games like that. But um, overall, it's very, very much about um, the 
initial uh, initially technical focus but then how to blend that into the in the connection the communication side of things okay. between the, the top and the bottom so so why talking of that why does rope speak to you what where does it fit into your kink life what does it what does it do for you so rope is sort of the first thing that goes in my bag before I go to an event or if I'm arranging a play date, like I will grab some rope just because it's so incredibly versatile um, for use as either restraint or impact uh, or just simple sensation. Um, and the different types of ropes have different sensations and uh, different effects on both me and my bo and bottoms. So rope sort of is just like an underlying core of what I um, what I have in my kink awareness and it's my fallback um, because it's in the play style with rope as well it suits my flexible nature in terms of playing with people and being able to respond to their responses and um, it can either be incredibly aggressive it can be, or it can be incredibly subtle and incredibly gentle it can be all of those things in the same scene. And I like to sort of liken it to a, a, a good uh, con concert or concerto where there's different moods and different themes and the rise and fall and crescendo and then the, the um, resolution at the end. So the different ways that you can use rope really feel, fit well into that, um, whereas when you're using, say, an impact toy or something like that, it's got a much narrower range um, of how you can generate sensations with it. Mm. Definitely. So speaking of rope, which is your favorite type of rope to use for play and why? Um, majority, I use uh, jute rope, um, reasonably well-processed um, jute rope, because it has um, the combination of flexibility um, and smoothness for the pull-through. Uh, I also uh, really like the smell that comes with it, and, that, and that's something that triggers strongly with everybody. I find that um, when you're starting a scene and you're getting together and, oh, yeah, it's all good, and you're letting the day go, that bringing the jute out of the bag um, it brings its own smell, which of course smells incredibly powerful psychologically. So that tends to really set the mood. Um, but that said, I always do also always carry uh, nylon rope mm -hmm. um, because the the texture and the visual aspect of incredibly white shiny nylon rope changes my mood. Um, I find that tying someone with a, a shiny white nylon rope puts me into um, a, a ceremonial decorative sort of space, um, which you know very much suits uh, some of the more decorative Japanese ties, but also some of the Western ties, and um, so that generates a different mood. And of course, it's great for when body fluids are involved, mm -hmm. and you just want to be able to um, throw it in the washing machine on on high heat afterwards, which of course you can't do with jute or hemp. Yeah, but we're not in well. <laughs> well, you can so, once, once or twice, but then it breaks down. Yeah. So, what other gear do you use in rope that isn't rope? So the 
I guess the gear around that um, is the carabiners and the uh, rings of different sorts, frames. So, and you know, of course, the there's always some form of rope cutter within easy reach. And um, I actually, wax has got an interesting wax play has an interesting sort of crossover with rope. I find like. You know, you look. They talk about the different cultures in BDSM, and there, you know, there's rope people, but then there's always that sort of. Um, a lot of people bring wax into their rope play. It's a very common thing that I notice. I don't know if you guys have noticed that as well. Yeah, there's an association. I think potentially from Japanese culture, where wax play and rope seem to be often hmm. found together. Yeah, so I think that in sort of playing with the the natural. Um, uh, natural materials and the sensations that go with that. Um, but yeah, so the other than that, the, the, I tend to work from a suspension ring rather than carabiners. Um, partly that's because the way I initially learnt suspensions and things like that. Um, partly the, it suits my mm, the way my brain works in terms of designing ties. Um, to be able to work to a fixed point mm -hmm. uh, rather than clicking in and clicking out carabiners. Um, and that, you know, that led on to me trying to design a better suspension ring and or just make suspension rings. And then, of course, people started saying, hey, can you make me one of those? Can you mm -hmm. make me one of those? And it's um, all gone from there. And similarly, like same with the suspension frame that I designed, um, I have been dissatisfied with the frames that are around are available to us and um a friend said you know i'd like a, a frame can you build me something so i took that as an opportunity to do the the first prototype of course. um which i'm now on mark five of which is my final design which um i've currently got six orders sitting there waiting for me to finish moving house so that i can get onto building so, so what, what, uh, what did you focus on when you designed your own suspension frame, and what did you want the suspension frame to achieve? So, achieving the balance between portability, so in terms of the breakdown of the pieces, um, the overall weight again for portability, uh, then the blend of stability, uh, clear space uh, inside it, and well, back to stability are the two aspects of it of that. Um, sense of motion, um, the, the achieving the balance of having it made efficiently enough out of materials so that it's by no means going to break. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been through the you know, engineering design process for that to make sure that absolutely certain it won't break. Um, but allow, but bringing that back a little bit to allow that, like circus equipment or gymnastics equipment they will bend and flex. Mm. And so you will notice a little bit of movement in it, but that's the trade-off you have to accept for having it um, lightweight and portable. Obviously, yeah. Um, so besides the cutting tool, which is pretty much mandatory, I think we all agree on that, if mm -hmm. there was one piece of equipment you could bring with your rope and only one piece uh, to complement your rope scene, what would you choose to bring? Oh, well, I was going to say cutting tool to that one, but yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> it's it's too easy an answer because yeah, it's, it's not really optional. Yeah. Let's just take that as red. It's obvious. Everyone should have one. In fact, um, when I have taught people rope over the, the years and 
um, I sit down with them, like if I teach them or if I give them a piece of rope, I will also give them a pair of um, cutting, like emergency shears. Because, yeah. you know, for three, four bucks, it's like, you know, I've taught you something, I want you to be safe with it as well. And your group did a fascinating uh, review of cutting tools, right? Um, yeah. Which I'll link to in the show notes. So going through lots of different kinds of cutting tools and awesome. seeing whether they actually worked. It was yeah, it's and, a very interesting read. <laughs> and then how they worked. Like, it was a really interesting experience. Like, um, we had, uh, at the time, we had a great community here and everybody really bought into it. And we had, like, 20, 30 different things to test. And, like, initially you sort of think, oh, yeah, you know, some EMT shears is the go-to. But then it's like, well, hang on, what about all of the hook knives mm-hmm. from parasailing and rock climbing and all of those things and all the variations of those? Um, and someone had the thing which we all sort of agreed was the the winner the, the, or the, the gold standard was the Leatherman Raptor, which is a, a folding set of scissors with also a, knife, a hook knife built into it as well mm-hmm. that comes in a handy pouch that can click onto your belt. Amusingly, um, that is exactly what I use. I use a, a Leatherman thing uh, on my belt, so I think we agree on that. Yeah, yeah, and the the quality of the scissor blades on those um, are very long-lasting. They're amazing, whereas the um, the three-dollar EMT shears uh, and, and a lot of yeah, and also the same with the hook knives um, that you get for you know parasailing, rock climbing, things like that. Um, uh, unless they've got a replaceable razor blade inside them, um, most of those um, will blunt very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're a, a limited use sort of thing, which I think is really unfortunate. One of my things is that I believe everybody needs to practice cutting their rope with their emergency cutter mm-hmm. um, prior to you know, using it in in uh, in an emergency. Definitely. Um, so, uh, you know, someone who was close to me had the experience where they um, had to cut their bunny out of rope quickly and uh, they found that their hands were too small for their shears. Oh, that's not great. And and they had to then use sort of two hands on the on the shears to get the, the strength oh. into the grip. So then, that was it. then you're not supporting your model if you're using both hands on your tool. Yeah, in that case, in that situation, it wasn't um, uh, an issue. Um, it was just about getting the TK off as quickly as possible because the model um, got nauseous and okay. um, just needed to come out quickly. So it wasn't a um, suspension-related mm. cut down from that. It was the get the pressure off the chest as quickly as possible. I see. So, um, but, yeah, so back back to the original question. We've segued on to the very interesting thing of all the variabilities of um, emergency shoes. Um the the other thing that I would have um, in as a play thing, um, I'm actually going to say bubble wrap. Oh, interesting. Oh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, because it, if nothing else, most people enjoy it as um, aftercare. Okay. <laughs> but. Um, uh, using it as a um, predicament type thing, if you've got someone in a partial suspension and maybe you know chasing them around the floor and putting down some bubble wrap and making trying to make them stand on the bubble wrap and then punishing them if they do, that's great fun. Okay. Um, you're doing okay. sensory deprivation. Um, the just that very 
different and somewhat bizarre um, sense of touch that comes from it and then being able to pop them um, in someone's ears wow. usually elicits surprise followed by giggling <laughs> which giggling is an amazing place to be i think definitely yeah especially if you blindfold them and they're not aware that bubble wrap is going to be involved in the scene it could create quite a it, surprise exactly and you know then you can put it over them and just poke them through it and pop the bubbles while poking them simultaneously okay so, that sounds really <laughs> it's pretty um pretty uh, versatile hey guys this is Fox coming in for a short break. We really love making this Vogue podcast and sharing it with you. Sadly, hosting a podcast isn't free. Far from it, actually. So if you like this podcast and you want to support us, you can do so at ropepodcast.com. You'll find ways to buy rope stuff so that we get a cut from your purchases and also ways to donate to us directly. And if you can't afford to do that, that's okay too. Just enjoy the podcast. Now back to our normal programming. So is the idea that a rope bottom might need? I think that um, it would not be a terrible idea if all the rope bottoms also carried emergency cutters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that rope bottoms should have their aftercare and potential first aid needs um, in a kit. So, you know, if they if they need a blanket, blanket I was going to say blankie, they need a blanket afterwards, then... Um, it's not a terrible idea for them to have their favorite blanket. Um, and similarly, if like jelly babies or something like that, some sort of snacks, their favorite snacks, uh, and the first aid side of things for rope, um, that's a lot of people like to have uh, some sort of anti-inflammatory um, option in case uh, as a first response to uh, any sort of nerve issues. Um, so having something like that, I think, would be a good thing for bottoms to carry. All right. So Kinky Engineer, you design and create your own gear, which is not something everyone does. What do you <laughs> think is the most original, interesting thing you've created to date? So I'm actually torn between one of the rings that I built and the frame. Um, the so the the ring was a that I've ended up with which I call the four lobe ring um, for that eternal thing of seeking to separate ropes mm-hmm. which I know a lot of people use carabiners for yeah. but that has a different effect um, but eventually I designed a ring which is made from uh, four three quarter circles welded to a central post. Mm-hmm. And um, then with a lug underneath that, so that if you want a fifth point, you can put a, a um, carabiner into that. And yeah, I think that's uh, quite unique in the rope world in terms of um, most rings that people have are uh, two-dimensional yep. and usually circular. Um, some of them try to achieve rope separation by having bars inside that, which I've certainly made a lot of rings of different styles uh, and uh, a side story I actually um, ended up sort of getting my first commissions for real custom rings after I made a ring with the letters K and E on the inside of it 
to use as a sign when I was running a stall at FedEx <laughs> in Melbourne. And then um, someone came up and goes, cool, can I have that with this letter and this letter in it? <laughs> sure, I can do that. And he's like, oh, and while you're at it, can you do this thing? And sure, I can do that. And it's just um, grown from there. And then um, I'd had various bits, had an Etsy store years ago from making various leather bits and pieces, but hadn't done anything with it. And then I started to put this stuff up there. And just before Christmas a year ago, um, it obviously had drawn enough attention that, um, yeah, I was I was super busy and had people say, ah, oh, Christmas is in two weeks. Can you get it to me? I'm in Florida. I was like, well, <laughs> <laughs> no promises. But um, so, yeah, so that's sort of where it's those custom infill designs of rings. Oh, actually, the, um, the just one that I'm surprised I've forgotten, um, one that I call the Traveller, um, which ironically I don't have one to bring on my travels when I come and meet you guys soon. <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, realising that, um, you know, it needs to be lightweight and I like rings that have a very large diameter of the bar, so like a tube instead of a bar, uh, because that significantly decreases the stress in the rope. And also the um, the force required to pull it over, which then also decreases the stress in the rope. Um, but I designed one which kind of like someone described it as the pizza wedge, um, where it's got a a large radius curve out of pipe on the bottom, and then two arms going up to a central point, mm-hmm. um, so that you can anchor from it. Which when you think about most shibari rings, like you've got this full circle. But you only use that but, bit, right? Yeah, you you only work between five o'clock and seven o'clock. Yeah, yeah, you can't put um, rope up at eleven o'clock because it was like so, that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I've done that, and um, uh, a friend commissioned a uh, wanted something sort of artistic, and um, gave me a photo of the person it was going to be a gift for, and said, "Can you somehow work that photo into this ring?" And so wow. that led me onto um, doing laser cut profiles and welding those inside the rings to really customize things. So mm-hmm. that, that's generated a lot of interest because, you know, uh, turns out a lot of riggers like to know exactly which is their ring. And, yeah. <laughs> and brand, branding is branding a thing. Branding is a thing. Branding is, <laughs> but funny you should mention that because, you know, how there's the group on FetLife which is called Above the Ring. Mm-hmm. Um after making all of these things and sending them around the world and saying, hey, please tag me in photos because I love to see people using my stuff, um, irrespective of the advertising. I just enjoy pe- seeing people using the stuff that I make them. And then these photos came up, and I was like, huh, I need to start a new group called Above the Photo, mm. which is <laughs> for the ring, the ring makers and the hardware makers and the hard point installers and all of the things that go into allowing the suspension to happen, but which never, you never see the in the frame. Yeah, exactly. So talking about um, kind of risks and safety and things, you are very safety orientated and obviously you're very knowledgeable in this area. So what do you think the biggest risks are around rope equipment and how can people mitigate these? It's one of the most common things that I see that worries me is the things that people decide to hang people from, either fully or partially. Um, and that's 
not just rope related. That's you know someone in cuffs and they click a um, a a dog snap up onto a, a ring somewhere. Those sort of things worry me, and well, some of the things I see worry me. And um, the other is when people do dynamic rope where uh, like a dynamic suspension where you're using the rope to hoist the bottom up off the ground or rapidly change their height and the rope is bending over um, some carabiners or something which is a very small diameter close to the close to the diameter of the rope um, that's where that's a, an area which I think people really um, are not aware and um, have a level of trust which isn't necessarily justified. Um, I've got the advantage of being a, an engineer by profession and I work with uh, cranes and things like that. So understanding that the the radius that you bend the rope over significantly increases the stress in the rope if it's quite small. The, the so, risk then being that the rope could snap under that stress if it's not sturdy enough? Correct, yeah. So if you look at the rope incident reports, where the, a rope has broken, yeah. um, it will usually be that it's either a, a thin or hence underrated rope um, or that there was some dynamic action going on over a carabiner or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the um, one of the things I like to demonstrate to people is to just run just with a hand on either side of the rope pull it over a carabiner and say, just listen to what you can hear. Mm. And when you do that, you can hear a ratcheting noise. The rope's screaming. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, there's both the, the creaking noise of the rope, which is always a sign that the fibers are binding really hard. But there's also a um, ratcheting noise, which is um, on a twisted rope like jute or hemp, um, which is the, the sawtooth shape that it makes through the twist. Um, jumping up and down on top of the carabiner. Mm-hmm. And every one of those impacts significantly um, sort of shocks the rope yeah. and is also a sign that the radius of the um, carabiner that the rope's being pulled over is maybe a little bit too small for that rope. And hence why I like to use pipe instead of rope yeah. where I can. Give it a smoother, a, a smoother glide, a smoother glide over the the surface. Yeah, because like you know the high points on the twists of the rope, there's two of those in contact at any one time when you go over, say, a, a 20 millimeter diameter pipe. Whereas if you use a 10 millimeter diameter carabiner, um, it's jumping up and down um, yeah. in and out of those grooves. Very interesting. So what about the hard point? Uh, if you go into a venue for the first time and you're mm-hmm. thinking of suspending, how would you assess the hard points and what would you do before you confident suspending from them? So what I do, which is the same thing that I do in my structural, um, sorry, my engineering life, is that um, I do a thing called following the load path back to the ground. And so I look at um, the ring or what I'm going to attach my ring to and then follow that up usually into the roof or some beam or something and then follow that across to the wall and then follow that down to the ground because ultimately it's about keeping people off the ground so you need that all of that to be working mm. and some people um uh, like 
at a ven venues where there's an exposed timber beam, um, people will happily go, oh, it's like a quite a sturdy beam. I'll throw a sling over the top of that. And I know the sling is a climbing sling, so it's happily um, no fear of breaking. And a carabiner, it's a climbing carabiner, that's fine. Um, but then it's an understanding is like, well, how is that beam actually attached? What is yeah. that beam designed to do in the structure? So one of the things I do in Melbourne is that I um, say is like for the, the price of a cup of tea, I will come by and have a look at your proposed hard point and tell you if that's a problem or not. Um, you know, here in Australia, we have a lot of people who have um, back deck shaded areas mm -hmm. on attached to the back of the house. And they've got nice big sturdy beams to span a large area so that you've got a, a big entertaining area. Um, but the downside is that a lot of those have usually been attached by, in the worst case, um, two or three nails on one end, <laughs> yeah, that's um, really which have been, there, have, have been there for several years and have got yeah. rusty. Um, yeah. So you've got three nails, which are like two millimeters in diameter, holding up one end of the beam. Um, or it goes onto another beam, which has then got two or maybe three bolts into the structure. Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, the the it's still up there and it's not likely to come down, but I can't guarantee it won't yeah. when you start jumping up and down on it. And <laughs> if someone's tied up and you're on top of the concrete floor, the consequence, and this is where risk is, likelihood plus consequence, yeah. The consequence of them of that happening is that you know they might break their face. Definitely, uh, I, I remember being very disappointed in a very beautiful uh, bungalow here in Thailand when I saw we had a very nice beam in the ceiling, except the way it was attached, it was actually end to end with another beam, and they had been glued together. Yep. End to yep. end. Yep. There's there, that's the thing. There's some things which are just architectural beams. Yeah. They're there for the look of being a beam. Pretty, yeah, just definitely. A pretty beam. Yeah, and there's other ones which um, they're if the ceiling is peaked that follows the external roof line, um, so you get the nice um, exposed beam inside as as a feature to put extra airspace and light and sound and all those things as well. Those beams are not necessarily strong enough um, to support the roof and also have someone jumping up and down on the middle of them. Because they already have load on them, right? They already have load on them in a very particular way, and the combination of those things can add up to um, cause them to fail. So when people ask me to, um, if I can put a hard point up on something like that, it's like usually I'll work out a way to brace that beam back to something else um, or share the load across several beams so that there's a level of redundancy and it eliminates the the way the beam will twist and fail. Mm. And if it fails, it doesn't fail in a critical, abrupt way, but with a bit more of a warning. Yeah, that's a really big thing. Um, the the ones that worry me is where you can't see. So you know, you come to somebody's place or an event, a venue, and there's this um, eye hanging out of the ceiling. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, what is that attached to? <laughs> And like, can I get up in the ceiling? No, no, you can't. It's like, oh, I'm not going to use it. Um, equally, it's like, oh, but we, you know, we did the two big guys test, and <laughs> you know, so he, he's 120 kilos, and um, he's 100 kilos. So there's 220 kilos. They jumped up and down on it and said, well, that's great, but um, what if the nut is only hanging on by one thread, yeah. and it spins just 
a little bit more during play, which has happened relatively recently around um, in my social circle. Okay. That it um, the thing was built very very strongly, but it wasn't prevented from unscrewing the nut, mm. and fortunately the way they're apparently playing, um, which wasn't rope, it was a, a spreader bar suspension, uh, uh, like a shackled suspension, mm-hmm. but the top um, were, happened to be picking up and swinging and spinning the bottom in their arms as the thing undid from the ceiling above Ooh. them and came crashing down. Yeah, so look, he was holding her in her arms then. Uh yeah, I, th- I think the genders were possibly actually reversed yeah, in this I mean, case. I, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we, have a, we have a disclaimer in the earlier episodes. We tend to use genders <laughs> yeah. one way around, but we can totally use yeah. them in any combination for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, but, um, and that sort of brings up the point of, like, sometimes it's not necessarily the hard point failing or in terms of um, the person falling to the ground that's the problem. It's the... What about the equipment that's above falling on top of the person? Yeah, that can be better. Especially especially if you've got this nightmare case of something being drilled upwards into concrete and then mm-hmm. that concrete fails because concrete's not really designed to do that, is it? Having a, a pull well, down trade right like So yeah, it, it it depends is always the right answer. But yeah. there's definitely ways that you can do that, but um it's concrete is a perfect example of it feeds back to having like giving you a warning. Concrete doesn't give you any yeah. warnings. Concrete is a brittle material like a glass. So, like, if you tell someone, like, grab that glass and squeeze it, and um, when you yeah. think it's about to break, and, like, just before you think it's about to break, stop. And it's like, well, how can I tell? Because it'll just suddenly smash. And it's yeah. like, exactly. Yeah. And that's how concrete fails. And potentially it showers whoever is under it with well, smaller or larger bits of concrete when it does, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know... It, um, all of that adds to the to the incident and makes um, sometimes you know you might get lucky that you land on something soft and that's not hurt, but yeah. then it just adds another thing that can cause an injury. Definitely. Well, kinky engineer, you're clearly very knowledgeable about all that stuff, and it's been a pleasure talking to you about that. And we look forward to the workshops um, we're going to run together in Thailand in a few days. And that will be all from us today at the Rope Podcast. Uh, Thanks very much. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from, iTunes or Stitcher. And come friend us on our FetLife page, which is Rope Podcast, one word, no space. You can also find us easily at ropepodcast.com. We love questions from listeners, so drop us a message on FET, and we'll try to answer you in an upcoming episode. Thanks for listening. And have fun tying. 